Well, tonight we are in chapter four. I guess uh, I may, I threw those back in just in case I wanted to go back and look at them a little later, and we may serve, we may do that later. But I, I do want to go to this one. We pointed out that the purpose of Daniel, there was at least four purposes that we mentioned. It displays the providential work of God in history. It also talks about the fact that God is superior to any of the idol gods of the heathen, to the heathen nations. And I highlighted that because that's going to come into play tonight in the fact that God is going to display his power and show Nebuchadnezzar who God is compared to his own gods. And then we also mentioned there's a preview of things to come about the Messianic kingdom and then the sovereignty of God over all potential enemies, circumstances, and kings, <laughs> I could add, that God is in control. And that is the primary lesson of chapter 4. And it is truly an amazing lesson that we will see. I wanted to throw this one back up here too just to make sure we see in the political context of things, just how long Nebuchadnezzar has been in charge. Chapter 4, we don't see a timeline. But there are hints that this is probably something a little bit later in his, in his reign of 43 years, being uh, one of the great leaders then of Babylon, of the Neo-Babylon kingdom that he has, and I just wanted to make sure we keep that in perspective, because next week we're going to jump way on down the line to Belshazzar, and uh, then Daniel in the lion's den, and we're talking way, way many years down the road there, but that's where we are right now, somewhere in the uh, mid five. This 570s, 80s, down to 562. Some even think it could be as, this, here, this story could be as quick as maybe two years before his end of his reign. It's speculation uh, to me based upon what I was reading with some of the things that they were trying to go off of. But it is interesting because we just try to look and see because it's not revealed to us. And then since it's not revealed, we're just going to move on. <laughs> Tonight's agenda, we're going to just quickly remind us where we've been then we're going to cover chapter 4 tonight. And where we've been, remember, in chapter 1 is God providentially provided for Daniel and his three, three friends as they faced that first test of not defiling themselves with the king's food. And then we move to chapter 2 where God provides Daniel again the ability to reveal and interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And as a result of that, he is promoted. Last week, we talked about God rescuing Daniel's three friends from Nebuchadnezzar's edict that God nullified when Nebuchadnezzar said, you either worship my image and in essence serve my gods or I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace and you'll be incinerated and I'll just be glorified and my word as king is nothing bigger and better than that. And God said, wait, 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 not so fast. My word is king. And he begins to recognize that. But in all of those three instances that he's dealt with so far, this is all about somebody else. I mean, he's there. He sees it, but it's really not affecting him personally. And finally, in chapter 4, God gets very, very personal with Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result of that, sometimes when, we, when the lesson hits home to us and we finally go, ah, you're talking about me? 
then we have change. And that's kind of what we see tonight. So let's delve right into where we are. This chapter teaches a very simple yet profound lesson to us. And it does so in the context of a very interesting event that happened in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And we see tonight that the king had a very troubling dream, and Daniel basically reluctantly tells the king the interpretation of the dream. The dream would be fulfilled when the king developed this period of insanity, and he lived among the animals and then was restored. And upon his restoration, he praised God. And the lesson we learn that will be repeated three times in verses 17, 25, and 32 is that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he wishes to give it to. And something very closely associated with that, which is also repeated twice in this chapter in verse 3 and verse 34, is that his kingdom, God's kingdom, is an everlasting kingdom in his dominion from generation to generation. That is the lesson. And that's what's going to be taught. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to be taught that in the firmest way. But this chapter also represents the final chapter of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. He doesn't come into play anymore. Um, his reign has been very critical in the stories that we've seen. But again... What we're seeing tonight is his, really the climax of the spiritual journey that he's experienced when dealing with God's prophets and God's people during the time frame that he had. Remember, we talked about here, it began with his recognition of the excellence of Daniel and Daniel's three friends. It continued with the interpretation of the dream of the great image in chapter 2 by Daniel, followed by his experience with Daniel's three friends who refused to bow to the golden image that he had built and was rescued by God who absolutely nullified Nebuchadnezzar's commandment. That ought to have been telling him something right there, but he didn't really get it. But tonight, we will learn beyond a shadow of a doubt that all of his own power as a human monarch was delegated to him by God, and God could remove it at any time when he wanted, and there was nothing he could do about it. Now remember, he's the most powerful man on earth. There is nobody more powerful than this man. And you have to remember that in terms of where we are. But we also get a glimpse into the respect and the concern that Daniel had for his king, which to me is very, very touching. I am sure all along that Daniel wanted to see this man change his heart. I just don't think it, he saw it coming from this direction that it would happen. But it is interesting. So these opening verses, we're introduced to the decree that Nebuchadnezzar made. And I want to read that. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. To all the peoples, Nebuchadnezzar the king, the king, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. 
So the setting is, of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is letting everybody in the world know something happened to me, and I'm going to tell you about it. This is being told from his perspective all the way through. Could Daniel have helped him write it? Probably. But this is his perspective. It's like he's getting up and basically telling his own little testimony of what God has done to him and for him. And that's the entire perspective of chapter 4. So it begins with this greeting to all the peoples and nations and languages, and it proceeds to state the king's desire to make known to them the wonders that God has wrought with him. He wanted to reveal this to others. He wanted others to see just how great God was and the signs and wonders that he had performed. That would eventually make him a much humbler and gracious king in the eyes of his people and in the eyes of God because he did work these wonders. And it's interesting that this pagan king is not afraid to admit to the world what God had done to him. And that's pretty eye-opening. Most pompous, proudful people want to hide all of the dirty laundry. But boy, he becomes transparent in this story. And he does anything but that. He goes into the details and tells exactly what happened. And he's not embarrassed to speak about it. It's fascinating that it's told by this king who describes his humiliating story and how God brought him down. But in the end, the lesson teaches him that God is a powerful God. God will do wonders, and he wants to share the story. So we basically have in the first three verses a short hymn, sometimes known as a doxology, that praises God, offered by the most powerful man in the world to the most powerful being in the world. God Almighty. <clears throat> he recognized that God had truly warned him, pleaded with him through Daniel, and then God acted. And then when he was repentant, God restored him. And that's much like the same story that goes on every day, isn't it? Even in the world today. His personal arrogance, his personal pride brought this on, but his repentance and his humility is what led to his restoration. And in the end, God taught him a humbling lesson, but it also protected his kingship through seven years of, or seven seasons of insanity, and he delivered from, from that, put him back on his throne, and when he did all of his honors, came humbling back just exactly what they as they were before all this. And he says, unlike every other human king, that he realizes God's kingdom is eternal in its duration. His dominion is from generation to generation, extends into eternity. Kings grow old, they die, their kingdoms are assumed, they're taken over by others. All the while, while all this is happening below, God is still firmly in control above, and nothing's happening. He just simply patiently watches as these little bitty kings rise to power who think they're something, who think they're smarter than God, and God just laughs. 
And he says, no, I've got the upper hand. Just wait. And I think sometimes it might be good for us in this little first three verses to realize that sometimes we need to think about what God has done for me. I kind of akin this to uh, a long elevator speech <laughs> that he's giving based upon what has God done to me and for me. And sometimes maybe it's appropriate that we sit and think, what has God done for me? And when I say a little elevator speech, that's just something that we tell people, that we memorize, we get down, and we just tell people how God is effective in our lives, what he's done for me, where I was, what he did, and what he will do. And I just kind of thought that's what he did. And if a pagan king can do that, why can't we? <laughs> Maybe we should. But then we get into the, the heat and heart of the matter of verses 4 through 18, where we talk about Nebuchadnezzar's great dream or his dream of a great tree. And in this particular section, the king tells everyone of a very vivid dream that he had, and he saw this great tree that reached into the heavens, a tree that kept growing, a, a tree that he said was in the midst of the earth, but it kept growing and growing so big that in the vision, everybody on the earth could see it, no matter where they were. The tree was so magnificent, it would offer food and shelter for both man and beast. And what more could you ask about that one? I mean, it's, he's thinking, this is amazing. But while he's admiring just how amazing this tree was, a divine messenger commanded that the tree be cut down. And not only was it to be cut down, its branches were to be cut off, its leaves were to be, to be removed, its fruit was to be scattered everywhere, the beasts and all the men that dwelt underneath it and the birds of the air where they built all their, their nests was to be hushed away and chased away, and the only thing left remaining was this little bitty tree stump. A stump that was itself to be protected by a band of iron and, and um, brass and other things. It would be the only thing that would be left behind. It would simply exist with the animals in the wild. But its roots would still be buried in the earth indicating that it would grow. And he declared that the one who was represented by the great tree was to endure this terrible fate until he learned that the most high rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wishes and sets it up with even the basest of men. That's when Nebuchadnezzar became terrified. As he opened the chapter, what did he say? Life couldn't been any better. The wars that he had fought were over. The city of Babylon that he had built from the coffers of everybody that he had taken over is magnificent. The hanging gardens that he built for his wife is beautiful. Everything was exactly what I wanted it to be. And then this happened. <laughs> and now he's terrified. It was too vivid. So he calls for the wise men. They can't tell him the answer. Finally, calls for Daniel. 
And he knew that if he called for Daniel, Daniel could reveal it. And sure enough, as we will learn, he was not disappointed. Daniel revealed exactly what the interpretation was, but it was not good news. When I mentioned in verse 4, he tells a story. He talks about how, how life was good and stress-free at the moment. In other words, I said, it could not have been any better. His mind was there. He thought he was the great. He, he thought everything was so great because I am great. He had no medical issues. That's important. I think it's important that it states all. Well, he didn't have no medical issues. He not say that. It just says he's at the top of his game, basically. And I think it was important if you look back in retrospect at the very end because he's not blaming it on just some, some uh, malady that he's been experiencing for so long. Oh, that explains everything. No. He's saying nothing could be better than it is. And he sets that stage. And based upon that context, he then will learn a mighty lesson. And he will teach us. And he will soon learn that the great I am, Jehovah God, will teach this proud monarch who he really was. I did all this because I am who I am, and yet the I am will humble me. Now, was he great? Absolutely. The early part of his reign, we mentioned all the military conquests that he, that he had, all the, the coffer, the wealth that he brought in. Everything was exactly as he wanted, to, as he wanted it to be. But he goes on in the story in verse 5, and he, he says he experienced a dream that made him afraid, and he's terrified and troubled. And the reason for the king's fear seems to be associated not so much with the, the dream in its entirety, but the fact that this great tree was now ultimately cut down to the earth. And it seemed ominous to him. It seemed to suggest maybe... This just may be something that, is it an overthrow to my kingdom? Is this something that I need to be concerned about? It reminds me of a time where you go to your doctor for um, your annual physical, and when you come for the session where, where they say, let me tell you what I found, they go, we found something that we need to go check out a little more. And when that happens, what do you do? You just say, when, when can we get back together? What do you need to run? What's going on? I need to know what's happening here. And that's exactly what we see him in this state. He thought everything was fine. And now all of a sudden he sees this. Is there something going on? Is this about me? Could this possibly be about me? Maybe it's about my enemies. If it is about me, what am I going to do about it? We might ask in verse 6, how seriously did he, did he view this dream? Did he just pass it off? No. He just didn't ask for his counselors to come. It says he made a formal decree. You come and you come now. I need you here. This is an official state of business. He's in trouble and he wants help. And they have to assemble before him. So verse 7, they all parade in before him. I'm sure with their dream manuals. Remember we talked about that in chapter 2. They all had the little dream manuals that tried to give the explanation of everything. That's my input, by the way. I'm sure they didn't have the dream manuals there. But I can just see them bringing their dream manuals. And they're, what, what were they wanting to do? They're just eager to grab their place in the sun, aren't they? I mean, here's, my, here's another chance. This is another way I can get promoted. But unlike the story in chapter 2, he doesn't test them. He just says, remember chapter 2? Tell me the dream. 
No, no, you tell us the dream. No, 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 you tell me the dream. Mm -mm, I'm not going to tell you the dream. This time he tells them the dream. He's not messing around. Something is scaring him. He told them the dream, and the only thing that they would have to do is just simply provide the interpretation. Now, you want to know there's a lot of pressure. Anytime you're trying to do something when you know it's simply superstitious, that you're giving stuff away anyway. <laughs> but they know that this is, this is grabbing his attention. They want their place in the sun, but as soon as they really heard what was going on, what did they do? They basically went and hide and hid under the nearest log, and they said, we don't want anything to do with this. We're not going to tell you the interpretation. They saw that it troubled him. When they heard about the tree falling, maybe they knew enough to try to put two and two together and says, if I mention to him that he's getting ready to fall, what's going to happen to my head? Remember, he'd already threatened them before in chapter 2. You don't tell me the dream, I'm going to rip you apart and I'm going to destroy your house. We have no explanation of that this time. He doesn't seem to indicate that. Nevertheless, he wants the explanation. He's not going to get it from them. So what does he do? He calls Daniel. He knows that Daniel can give him exactly what he wants. But will Daniel do it? Daniel's just as smart as these people. If they saw that their head, if, if they assumed that I can't do this, this is too dangerous. What about Daniel? Is he going to do what he what he knows he can do? Does he, is he going to have the courage to speak up and tell the king something that he knows is going to be devastating? And I think there's another lesson. I'm putting all the lessons in the lessons this time. I'm not waiting till the end. <laughs> so it's not going to be a lesson at the end. The lesson that I said here is sometimes doing the right thing takes a lot of courage. There's a song by Celine Dion, Courage, Don't Leave Me Now. I need you to keep away the doubts. Beautiful song. Remember in Corinth, Paul had some fears of some people there. And it took the Lord coming him in a vision at night. Acts chapter 18, verse 9. Paul, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. God knew there were people there who would listen. I think God knew that this man would listen. So speak. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, he asked the brethren there to pray for him, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. It's not always easy to preach the gospel to a hostile crowd. It's easy to preach the gospel to an inviting, warm crowd. But to preach it sometimes to a hostile crowd is not as easy. It takes boldness. It takes courage to go to a brother or sister in a situation such as Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 18. We fear what will happen. Matter of fact, most, most, most people say we, have, we, we always think about the worst thing that could happen 
and not the best thing that can happen. Sometimes that's because we've experienced the worst thing. <laughs> and it puts us on guard. But we still have to do that. Even a broad statement, such as Jude chapter 1, verse 3, to contend earnestly for the faith takes courage. Not proud for courage. Oh, I can do this. But courage to help change the mind of someone who is not walking in truth by God's help. Courage. Don't leave me now. But he goes on in verses 8 and 9, and he continues to tell the story from his perspective. And Daniel came in before him, and he told him the dream. Why? Because he believed that Daniel could tell him the dream, because he said he possessed the spirit of the high God. Now, some versions say spirits of the gods. Either way, you'll still get the same conclusion. He believed Daniel had a divine relationship that nobody else did. And sometimes, if he spoke of it in the spirit of the holy gods, he may have just simply had no better way to explain what you and I may know what he's really talking about, that Daniel was blessed by God with the Spirit to do this. And often that's the case. We, we experience it all the time. Can I talk to your pastor? Well, you know what that means. Or are you the pastor here? David and Leland probably get that all the time. Can I, are you the pastor? People just talk in religious terms that oftentimes they just don't know anything about. They really don't know the context of something. And that's really what happened here. But then in verses 10 through 12, we get to the heart of the matter. And he tells Daniel, okay, I'm going to tell you the dream. This is David Job's words. Do you want the good news first or the bad news first? <laughs> he opts for the good news. And he tells Daniel the visions. I'm not going to take time to read that. He tells Daniel the visions just like he told the wise men in verses 5 through 7. But for the first time, we see the details. Before, it just says he told them. But now we see the details, and they are fascinating. And he starts off with the good news. He saw this great tree located in the middle of the earth. It reached into the heavens. It grew in front of him. as so massive that it was visible to all the people on the entire earth, no doubt representing a monarchy of his type of glory. And its leaves were beautiful and growing. It was loaded with continuous fruit, fruit that provided food for all. Even the beasts of the field went there for food. The birds of the air went there to put their nest in and raise their little ones and provide their food. It was just a great expression of how much protection the people were offered under this great magnificent tree. And by the way, it's interesting that under ancient Near East Literature, lots of kings are depicted as sprouting trees. <laughs> so this would not have been something that would have been unusual. But then he gets to verse 13 and 14. That was the good news. Now let me tell you the bad news. Let me tell you what was troubling me. While I was observing this tree, a divine messenger descended from heaven. And by the way, I think that's just two different ways of saying the exact same thing. So one, one calls him a watcher, one calls him a holy one. But he continued in verse 14. He not only just appeared, he shouts out, cut down the tree. What? Cut down the tree. Cut off its limbs. Remove the leaves, scatter the fruit, run all the birds and the people away. Have nothing to do with them. Do nothing, just leave the stump. And I'm thinking he's going, did I just hear that correctly? <laughs> 
Did he just say what I thought he said? Chop down the tree? A majestic tree chopped down to utter devastation right in front of me. That's what I heard, Daniel. And there was nothing left. You almost get, you see why I'm so terrified? <laughs> but as we move into verse 15 and 16, he also hears the watcher say, don't do anything to the remaining stump. Leave it alone with all of its fruits in the ground, surrounded by the tender grass of the field. And to make sure it's protected, they place a band of iron and bronze around it. It's not a dead stump like we would see. It's a living stump. It could once again produce shoots down the road. It could be vital. But what's going to happen to the stump? It'll just be left. It'll just be there with the rest of the grass. And it'll experience the dew of heaven until it shoots up. It'll exist, it simply exist in the, with the animals in the field until seven times would pass away. It's in verse 15. I want you to look at something. Verse 15. He'd been talking about this great tree. There's a transition in verse 15. I saw the visions in my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher. Oh, that's verse 13. Nevertheless, the leaves, the stumps, and the earth, behold, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of the... And let him graze with the breeze, with the breeze, beast on the grass of the earth. Everything before was about the tree. Now he, may, he just makes the transition. Let him graze. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. And let seven times pass over him. I thought he was talking about a tree. And the divine messenger says, no, I'm talking about an individual that the tree represents. And that's what caught his attention. Who is this talking about? Who is this talking about? This is my vision, my dream. Is this all about me? Daniel, let me know now. He closes the story in verse 17 by saying the divine messenger revealed the divine decree. Decree. One of the purposes of that decree is that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whoever he will. He sets it over the lowest of men. And in verse 24, we're going to see that he makes it clear that this decree came to the Most High God himself. He was a proud man at the very top of his game. No one was more powerful than him. And he thought himself quite superior to everyone. But God will bring the proud man to his knees. In his own way, in his own time, and in his own way. We might ask, how does he do that? And the answer is, we don't always know. We know how he did here because he revealed it to us. How does he do it now? I don't know. But I'm sure he does. And in his own way. And that's just something we have to simply trust him. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. James chapter 4 verse 10. It's unfortunate, it's unfortunate to me that from my perspective that Nebuchadnezzar heard and saw this in his dream. 
and that he was unable to make the appropriate change in his life without God teaching the lesson. A very, very difficult lesson. As humans, we often fail to make the proper application. It's easy for me to see what needs to change in your life, but it's not so easy for me to see what needs to change in my life. Jesus referred to it as me not even noticing the plank coming out of my eye, but I can see the speck in your eye. Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. It took Nathan coming to David saying, you're the man. Not like, boom, you're the man. But no, you are the man guilty of the heinous crimes that he did. He closes the section in verse 18 by saying, look, I told you the dream. Now tell me what it means. I know you can again because you said the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So let me have it, Daniel. And I think he also knew that Daniel had the courage to tell them exactly what he needed to know. Some leaders are yes people. They just only want people around them that are yes, 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 yes. Can I do this? Yes, 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 yes. It's not a problem. Sometimes when you're dealing with a yes leader and they don't want to hear, it's like somebody, I once I was counseled on this one. They said, if you're dealing with somebody like this, it's kind of like trying to, it's trying to like being uh, told, you have to go tell this lady that her baby is ugly. It's impossible. <laughs> you cannot do that. <laughs> But dealing with people like this is next to impossible. One time I had a wing commander. Here's how I handled him. Uh, he would come to me and he would say, David, we decided this and we want this to happen. Can you make that happen? And I would just smile and I would say, yes, sir, you can do that. And when you do, I'll make sure I schedule some time to come visit you in jail. <laughs> and I would smile and he would laugh. And I would laugh. If he didn't laugh, I had another line. <laughs> but I said, if you don't want to go to jail, then you can do X, Y, Z, whatever the case was, you know, that happened at the time. You can still accomplish what you want. You'll be legal. And you can go home every night and have supper with your family. How do you like that deal? It always won. It was a winning combination with him. Sometimes it just, does just depend upon the approach. Well, now we're in the section where Daniel interprets the dream. Um, I don't know about you, but I could just see Daniel shaking his head from what he's hearing. He's dumbfounded. He's devastated. Daniel had faithfully served this man for years, and now he has to deliver this bad news to him. Notice in verse 19, it says he took some time. It, 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 it really just bothered him. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the interpretation of the dream. I just can't tell this guy <laughs> what's going to happen to him. He respects him enough to do that. The Aramaic term there means astonished, appalled, greatly perplexed. The term one hour means it was just a short time, a short period of time. So he prefaces the dream by saying, look... I hope this don't happen to you, but the people who are going to love what I'm going to tell you is not me. It's your enemies. Just know that because <laughs> it's not going to be good news. But I can't help but not thinking Nebuchadnezzar already knew that. He had to know something was up. 
And it's interesting that he's very empathetic and sympathetic to Daniel. He's in a difficult situation, and he basically says, Daniel, it's okay. Don't you worry about it. Don't let this trouble you. Tell me the interpretation. I thought that was very interesting. So Habermann encourages us to speak in verses 20 through 22. Daniel tells him the interpretation. And basically, he virtually repeats what was what the king said in verses 10 through 12 until he gets down to verse 22, and that's when he delivers the dreadful results. What does all this mean? It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. The tree is you. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, I haven't heard that name. Nebuchadnezzar, the tree is you. And then he sees the writing on the wall. What happens to the tree? It's going to come down. Only anything he doesn't know is... What's all this mean and when's it going to take place? He didn't want to hear that. But his pride got to him. He, just as his, his pride had also grown, as extensive as his kingdom had grown, and in the course of his life, the king had lost his perspective on his own humanity. And he failed to realize he was a mere creature of God, that God is the creator, and we are simply one of the creators. All power should go to God. Daniel says in verse 24, this will happen. It's not a bad dream. This is going to take place. And he says, he emphasizes the fact that the judgment is not his own, but it's the decree of the Most High. The dream has to do with Nebuchadnezzar and no one else. And the night vision is predictive. God is allowing the king to see into the future by means of this dream and its interpretation. Verse 25, and he said, this is going to happen until you now. Verse 17, it was the living. Verse 25, it says, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wished. He closes the interpretation by saying there is one silver lining to this all in verse 26. God's not going to destroy you. The trump, the, the stump is living. You will be restored when you finally recognize that God is who he is. But God will save you and God will protect your kingdom. And then in verse 27, I want to make sure we get this in. We hear Nebuchadnezzar, this is from Nebuchadnezzar's words, not Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar describes the very humble and sincere appeal that Daniel made to him. This is Nebuchadnezzar telling him the story. You might say that Daniel provided some spiritual counsel to him, and he made him two suggestions. First of all, the first piece of counsel I want to tell you, King, is you should stop with your sins and deal righteously. He knew what he had done. Stop it. Act righteously. And number two, show mercy to the poor. Maybe if you do those two things, God will extend your kingdom. That too had to take great courage because it was uninvited advice to the greatest king on earth. Daniel basically says, no one will wish this on your closest enemy. And I don't want it to happen to you. 
Those we love, we warn. Those we love, we warn. Daniel was doing all that he could to persuade the king to help him, and even today, I want to make sure you understand this and we understand this and I understand this. Daniel was doing all that he could to persuade the king to help him change his behavior based upon changing his beliefs. Today, we are in the belief-changing business. That's what it's all about. I think the Bible says this. Would you like to know what the Bible says? Take a look at these passages. Read it for yourself. What, what do you think it means? We don't change minds based upon persuasive words that we come up with. We are to change, change people's minds and lives based upon what the Word of God says. We just have to learn how to use the sword in various ways. We have to learn how to use the sword in the right way with the right person, to say the right thing, to invoke them to get their curiosity up, to, to search God's will. But it's a life-changing business that we are in. If we don't believe that, we just aren't going to be effective in God's kingdom. We need to understand where we are. Verses 28-33, the dream is fulfilled. Um... I'm going to quickly go through this. He didn't, he didn't heed his warnings. He was warned, but he did not heed his warnings. And as a result of that, he was driven into the... Uh, eventually, 12 months later, he was driven into the forest to live like an animal. He was up on his, his palace thinking, look how great life is. And the thing that I noticed, I loved about it, was while the word was still in his mouth, a voice fell from heaven and says... Your kingdom has departed. Had he been successful? You bet he had. But he had all gone to his head. And in verse 33, at the same hour God's judgment was enacted, he was driven from man, he ate grass like an oxen, his body was wet with dew, his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. You're talking about deeply humiliating. And he's telling the world what happened. Remember, this is not on the Babylonian news. This is the king getting up there saying, this is what happened to me. You need to learn from my mistakes. <clears throat> we don't know how God carried this out. Lots of guess. There's actually diseases called zoanthropy that people think they are an animal. And they go around grabbing grass and eating it. There was one guy I was reading about, he thought he was a cock pheasant. He roosted in a tree every night. <laughs> Could that have been how God did it? Maybe. I don't know how he got it. He did it. But in verses 34 through 37, after a period of insanity, he eventually brought himself to look upon the God of heaven. And it says in verse 34 that he simply lifted his eyes to heaven, and when he did, his understanding returned to him. And he blessed the Most High God. He honored him who he lives forever. He acknowledged that God's kingdom or his dominion is for everlasting, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. In verse 35, he said, All the inhabitants of the earth, including himself, are nothing compared to God. 
No one can restrain God or ask him, what have you done? He could do that as a king to his subjects, but not to God Almighty. In verse 36, he said, his reason returned to him, his honor and majesty with him was restored, just as God said he would if he repented. And he even sought out his counselors and nobles. Remember, in the first part, he was driven away by his own people. And now they're seeking him out, putting him right back to where he was. What did he eat after this? I don't know. Maybe he became a vegetarian. Maybe he liked food and grass. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he was one of those grass eaters. I love vegetarian food, by the way. I'm just, so I'm just kidding. Nothing against vegetarianism. <laughs> if I had my way, I would always learn to cook it. <laughs> but he tells the story, I praise, extol, and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are true, and his ways are just, even how he dealt with me. It was just what he did. The story ends on a very humbling or very positive note. God had established in the minds of all the living his miraculous intervention that even the most powerful king was answerable to God. And moreover, he proved to his own people who are still there in exile that he's not forgotten you. He is God Almighty. Okay, thank you.